the topic today was around those three pillars. Mm. Having them somewhat separated causes a lot of that pain. When a, a data scientist wants to develop a model, the first thing you need is access to the data. Now, without that in place with the data fabric and that strong foundation sitting underneath, then you start getting all sorts of challenges. How do you then get data at scale to train that model in a seamless way? And different parts of the puzzle require different resources, the amount of storage for the data, the amount of compute required. So you need to be able to separate those to be able to drive it successfully. Hi, and welcome everyone to another episode of Data Futurology. As you know, in Data Futurology, we aim to discuss the topics and challenges that are most relevant to leaders in the analytics and AI space today. We do that by speaking with leaders and executives from around the world around their journey, the solutions that they've created throughout their careers, the business value that they've brought, and how they got these new technologies, including AI, adopted in their organizations for maximum impact. The idea is that you can learn from these conversations and that it can help you do the same in your organizations. So we're very excited to continue that conversation today. Today, we're going to be talking about exploring the three technology pillars that are needed to successfully scale AI. So one of the big pieces of feedback that we've received from the audience is that a lot of organizations have focused in creating their data science capabilities and building that up and that they feel like they can build models at the moment, but that the majority of these models are not making it to the customer. They're not making it to the pointy end of where they're creating a difference for somebody and by that creating business value. So all the good work in creating the model is getting stuck and not living up to the promise that it has because it's not able to interact with the people that it, that is going to make a difference in their, in their lives and in their journey. So today we're going to be speaking about how to overcome those barriers and what are some of the pillars that can enable us to simplify and speed up that journey, which will be excellent. I'll throw over to the guests to hear about their background, their journey, get them to introduce themselves, and then we'll jump into the main pillars of what we're going to be talking about today. So I might start with you, Scott. So first of all, how are you going today? Good, thanks. That's a uh, nice sunny day here in Queensland. Yeah, very nice. Very good spot to be in as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, tell us a little bit about your journey in the data space to date. Yeah, perfect. So my journey didn't actually start in the data space. So early days in my career, I focused mainly in the telco industry and um, probably more of a technical role. Um, where my journey in the data space started was uh, I was fortunate enough to get a role with a company called Spacetime Research, a small Australian company. And uh, they invented and created one of the world's first columnar databases, um, wow. and which was kind of leading edge technology at the time. Uh, databases at that point were typically sort of relational databases and EDWs weren't even that common. Um, so at the time, uh, the, the main customer base was working with stats agencies around the world, um, analysing censuses and things like that, which um, mm -hmm. I found it really, really fascinating. So um, that's why I've, I've remained in the data space and probably across a number of different technologies. So technologies changed uh, across the, the, the years, uh, going from sort of relational databases to enterprise data warehouses through to uh, distributed uh, solutions. And now we're sort of moving into even more modern uh, solutions using containerization and, uh, and the likes. 
Um, also with a mix of on-prem and cloud, which um, starts to make things uh, really interesting. Um, so I, I've really enjoyed the journey and uh, love playing in the space. And when I talk about the data space, it's mainly been around analytics, AI type solutions. And, and also there's been a little bit of a mix while it's mainly been technology organizations. I have worked uh, with a couple of consulting groups. So because um, I see that the sort of people process technology are as important as each other in this space. Man, that is excellent, and I yeah, I love that you've you've um, you know as as the uh, industry has matured, you've um, kept uh, kept up with the the trickier end of the challenges, and not not uh, focus on on you know using uh, technology or using proving technology to solve kind of old problems. You've been moving up with the with the pace, so that's that's fantastic. Now, great, great to now keen keen to hear your insights today. It can be fun because um, I guess sometimes it's trying to keep up with technology is one thing, but um, working with sort of leading startup type organisations is quite exciting. Uh, I do find that it's, you know, part of what I enjoy is educating the market. So when you come mm-hmm. into a new technology, it's typically something that's new to organisations and educating them in that space is as important. That's awesome, man. Love it. That is great. Um, Rit, how about how about from your from your side? Well, first of all, how are you going today? And and tell us a bit about your journey so far. Uh, look, in Melbourne, so we're coming out of lockdown, so I think mm-hmm. time to be happier. Um, so absolutely started the day with a joy. So uh, that's one thing. But I think from a journey point of view, very similar journey to Scott uh, on a fairly technical level. So again, started on a technical. Uh, as a developer, but uh, one of the things that I always enjoyed doing was data and the performance engineering. So that's kind of how I segued away from a pure developer role to more data uh, style roles, uh, where I started working with uh, in-memory databases back in 2009, when uh, you know in-memory databases were a fairly uh, niche market. Uh, you know, moving from in-memory databases to the NoSQL systems to then uh, big data technologies. Uh, you know, more recently before HPE, uh, Scott and I, we worked on a GPU database startup, which was again wow. a cutting edge uh, technology out there. Uh, and quite recently in HPE, uh, which you would be surprising to hear is uh, we're running a small startup, uh, you know, uh, within HPE, again, working on some cutting edge stack uh, in the AI, ML, and the data space, which is, uh, which is again very similar to Scott, as this is where you know I've spent most of my career. Man, super, super excited. Um, so yeah, very keen to jump into that. Uh, before we do, I'll quickly mention that so far we've had about fifty percent of people answered the poll. Uh, so thank you very much for the ones that have taken the the time. Uh, for for the people that haven't had a chance yet, uh, please go ahead and uh, answer the poll uh, now if you can. That'd be great. Um, so you mentioned that you guys have have moved into a startup in in HPE, um, and I know that a lot of people think when they think HPE, they think of a hardware company. Um, what what is that? Um, how does that work? And what does your um, the the startup do? I'm sure I, I can take that question. So look, uh, I think HPE uh, is obviously you know. Uh, a, a very, very 
uh, sort of strong business from decades and decades, uh, you know, has seen various different shifts in the market. And obviously, they are going on another transformation transformation journey where, you know, earlier customers used to buy infrastructure as it is uh, to mm-hmm. more delivering infrastructure as a service capability, uh, you know, where customers can obviously do that in the cloud. But HPE is looking on that journey to deliver cloud-level experiences to customers for their on-premises workload as well in this hybrid world. And I guess it made... Uh, perfect sense for them to then on top of the infrastructure as a service workloads to start offering uh, platform as a service workload, data workloads, uh, which is where this, uh, and AI workloads, which is where, you know, our software startup comes into the picture where Mm -hmm. HPE acquired a couple of startups. Uh, They invested almost a year and a lot of money in in engineering to uh, bring this stack together. Uh, to then provide those capabilities to customers. Uh, so we uh, purely work still on the software side of the business, but then HPE itself is our customer who is using this technology to deliver platform as a service capability to their you know, large install base. Man, extremely, extremely exciting. Um, and and is, that, is that a, well, first, is that a new move for, for HPE to be moving into um, into software and, and how does this uh, software fit into the, the rest of the organization and, and the strategy? Um, so this move, obviously HPE has had different uh, experiences with the software business units in the past. Um, so I believe this, uh, this sort of approach of HPE is purely as an enabler Mm-hmm. Uh, to start offering these capabilities to the customer. So uh, this business is almost uh, a few years old now. Um, as, I, as I said, uh, the, even though the brand itself called mm-hmm. Esmeral is fairly new uh, because, you know, after the acquisitions and after investing, uh, you know, the platform that HPE created has come out with a brand name called Esmeral. But the technologies have been in production for over 10 years mm-hmm. uh, for various different use cases individually. Uh, so, yeah, so the brand, but, but still the business has seen a few years already and a number of large deployments as a combined platform too. Yeah, that is great. Excellent, excellent. Um, so, with with the 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 wealth of experience that that you both have, uh, given given your backgrounds, I think you're um, you're really well positioned to um, to tell us a little bit about the the challenges that you're seeing out in the market at the moment. What what do you uh, maybe maybe I'll start with with Scott. Um, what what do you guys see that um, organizations are wanting or needing to do in order to um, to improve their their businesses in the in the current market uh, from a from a data and AI perspective, what uh, what would be the the main challenges that you're seeing? Uh, probably the the first challenge I've I've experienced with a lot of the customers I talk to is access to the data. So um, mm-hmm. data can live all over the place, as um, as we've mentioned earlier. Uh, siloed data uh, exists in a lot of organisations. Uh, and being able to access all that data to get uh, combined and unified insight out of it is quite key. Um, some of that data could live even in edge applications and, and you know, particularly in uh, organisations like manufacturing, as an example, where you're getting machine data from some of the factories and out at the edge to be able to improve um, production performance, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so accessing all that data is one key thing. And now with the migration to uh, cloud and cloud um, cloud applications, you, you start to mix data across on-prem and in the cloud, which uh, can become even more uh, tricky 
to, to access it. Um, when we talk about the cloud, uh, I think that the another key challenge is organisations being able to um, to move applications to the cloud. So there is a bit of a trend of, of migration to cloud as part of a digital uh, program that a lot of organisations have. But we find that um, as customers go through it, they very quickly find that not all applications lend themselves to being able to be put in the cloud and then they start to get themselves in a bit of a mess and they start to end up with data entanglement, data gravity around some of the applications that remain on premise and they start to uh, come up with a very complex solution for something that they set out to actually do the opposite initially. Yeah, right. Yeah, definitely trying to do the opposite. And and uh, for the people that don't know, uh, can you describe data gravity? Uh, so data, data gravity, uh, if I try and simplify it, it's, it's around the data that applications need. So um, different applications uh, share data. They use um, inter-use inter data for their operations, et cetera. So if you have, uh, as a very simple example, two applications that talk together, you put one of those in the cloud, the other one stays on-prem. Now you've got data gravity and issues around accessing uh, different applications, accessing that data. Yeah, no, that is, that's really, really good. Um, Reid, how about from your perspective? Um, what, are, what would you say there some of the main challenges that, that, um, that you're seeing as well? Yeah, very similar. Um, so I think uh, the, the key challenges starts from obviously the data side of things, as Scott said, uh, uh, you know, on more technical side of things, uh, you know, migration to, you know, partial data to the cloud. Uh, because again, the, the idea of this modern data platform was always that we are going to break the silos and make data available to business as and when needed. Uh, but what's been happening, uh, where I've seen the challenges is that you end up creating, uh, you know, one NoSQL database here in the cloud, another mm -hmm. one on premises, uh, another, uh, you know, uh, analytical system in the cloud. There's another instance running for a different business. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a bank recently. They said they have 25 Kubernetes clusters in the cloud and there are six of them on premises and when we said can you just walk us through you know what's the rationale behind it yeah. um, so obviously the answer wasn't there uh, so I think this is kind of where uh, again not pinpointing uh, I think this is kind of where uh, the agility uh, is absolutely what everyone is experiencing uh, but that key problem you're seeing is that data gravity, data, uh, that breaking of the silos, because those things are still necessary. I, I mean, we've been talking about, you know, everyone's been talking about that those that problem for almost a decade. So it's not something brand new that we are talking about today. But I think what we are highlighting is that the approach we are on currently is not necessarily addressing that problem. So what that means is that if you are enabling AI style use cases, then they still have to run around and find where the data is in the organization and similar challenges to the data governance team who have to still have a very large complex data governance projects to even get hold of you know, that entire data sets. So that's one of the key challenges that we are seeing, which impacts the analytics and the AI workloads. And I, I think that is spot on because um, so many organizations have, have focused rightly so on, on agility of, of delivery um, to, to the end user and getting, getting business value as quickly as possible. And, and for that agility, you almost need to move independently uh, to, to a large extent. And, and what, what's happened is that that's created silos 
uh, within the organization. And definitely, if you have structural silos from, from, a, from an organizational structure, then that's going to be mirrored or replicated in the data silos. Um, so so the, the independence and the speed, um, yeah, create silos and then create silos in the, in the data. Um, so maybe, maybe let's talk about, about that piece first. So I know that, that you both are passionate about, um, about data fabric, and maybe that's a good, good place to start. I'll throw, I'll throw to, to Scott first. Uh, on the data fabric side, for the people that don't know, um, can you tell us a little bit about um, what it is, or type of problems that it solves, um, and maybe, maybe we'll start there? Yeah, sure. So uh, the the Esmeral data fabric is the, I guess, the foundational layer under the Esmeral platform. Uh, and as a data platform, it, it set out to address a number of key issues. Um, if we look at scale, um, scale is the first one. So organisations are getting more and more data that's not new to anyone uh, as data grows exponentially. Mm. Um, being able to scale the platform almost infinitely um, to keep up with that demand is uh, one of the key aspects. Um, the other key aspect of the fabric is being able to stretch a single global namespace across numerous data sets. Mm -hmm. So being able to bring those silos together under a common umbrella. Um, so to the user uh, accessing the data, they see it as a single data source. Um, and that, that allows you to stretch that fabric, not just across some systems in your data center, but out to the edge, into the cloud, and start to really unify your data sets. Um, the, the other part of it is when, when you're building a system like this and you're starting to bring all that data together, you, all of a sudden you've got security issues um, mm -hmm. and data access issues. Uh, across the business and the different users. So being able to secure that platform from end-to-end -end is key. Um, and the other part of it is being able to uh, effectively multi-tenant the platform. So now that you bring everything together, you still need some, some form of division at times, mainly for security and use case purposes. So they're, they're probably some of the, the key areas that form that, that data fabric layer. But uh, RIDHAB might have a few extra points to throw on. Yeah. 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 I think uh, it's more of the enabling thing, right? So the, back to the silo point, the reason why people say, okay, I want one MongoDB instance here, another Redshift here, another object store capability here is that those applications would need those capabilities, right? Uh, and that's the inherent nature of different applications in a large complex organization. Uh, where data fabric concept is fairly unique is uh, it's a unified layer, which basically gives you all those capabilities. So mm -hmm. if you need to use an S3 endpoint, you basically say, okay, I want to use an object store here for this application. Uh, you go request that tenancy or that capability, uh, you know, uh, that tenant exactly from the from data fabric. Uh, you need a NoSQL database uh, for one of your applications where you want to serve, uh, you know, millions of transactions in an hour for a banking application. So then you go create a NoSQL DB in the same layer itself. Uh, you want to stream data because, like, if you look at streaming tables, NoSQL database analytics, they all have one thing in common that they all need that sort of large fabric 
storage underneath. Mm -hmm. So this is one unique approach which our founders uh, of the Data Fabric had uh, almost 10, 12 years ago where they saw the unification of these capabilities and they saw that these capabilities will be needed for most uh, the enterprises of the future. Mm. So those are all the things that are unifiedly built into a single executable, you know, which scales out, which is, I guess, the, the most unique technical capability out of the platform here. Yeah, definitely. That is that is excellent. And and then how how is it that the that the platform can, uh, or I guess how does it work? Does the platform connect to uh, existing say databases um, that are out there where where the data is, or does do they have to be created within the the platform and the fabric fabric itself? Sure. So effectively, it's uh, because it is providing you that large unified storage layer. Um, so it will be bringing data from those uh, sort of siloed systems and giving you that unified layer. Uh, so it's not necessarily a virtualization layer capability. It's actually like one of our customers, uh, you know, one of the large banks. Um, so they had uh, multiple data sets in multiple Hadoop environments mm -hmm. for one for compliance purposes, one for data science, one for different purposes, yep. and a large data lake in the cloud. Mm -hmm. uh, they had, uh, you know, some operational NoSQL databases, some analytical NoSQL databases. Uh, so effectively, uh, what they started on the journey typically was not just availability of data to the applications, mm. it's also cutting down the cost, right? When CIO looked at the bill, the utilization of the combined ecosystem, they ran an entire project on this. Uh, you would believe, you know, have to believe me on that. Uh, so they ran the entire utilization project on it and they saw 30% utilization throughout the combined ecosystem that they have. Yeah, and wow. In those, uh, you know, 20 or 25 plus system uh, which would be costing you know a significant amount of money to run and operate. Uh, so there was there's a straightforward business use case to then have that unified layer uh, of bringing the data into a single place. Uh, the virtualization technologies have absolutely a place in the architectures of the modern mm. platforms, but this is about actually bringing the data into a unified layer. Yeah, that is that is fantastic, and um, we have some some questions coming in from from the audience. Uh, I'll might throw throw one at you guys, and then we can um, come back to maybe discuss some some use cases. Um, but we have a question from from Naku. Hey, Naku, um, he says, "Do you believe some organizations think multi tenancy and and security first, and by that they um, they make their offerings more complex and slower to get out?" in the market. So essentially this is um, question or, or thinking about the balance between, um, between the complexity of the offering and the speed of getting to market and the complexity of the offering can be yeah, multi-tenancy and security things that might seem that they slow down um, versus the, the agility and the, and the push to get to customer that people want. Um, so yeah, do you guys have any any views about the balance and and maybe even how to start to shift it towards towards the right way if people feel that they're stuck? Yeah, so I can take that. So uh, they they think about those things because I think we've all been uh, uh, if you're a large bank or even if you're a small startup, 
security is is absolutely the paramount thing, right? So mm-hmm. if we ignore it in one case, then suddenly there's next day we might not even have half the business anymore, yeah. right? So this is kind of what forces them to start thinking from a security and even the multi-tenancy point of view, uh, because those two things go hand in hand in any applications. So where things where I see the change. Uh, which people needs to do to deliver, you know, at a more agile pace is mm. uh, to just ignore about those things by choosing the, by having the right platform in place, right? Mm-hmm. For example, uh, if S3 delivers multi-tenancy quite well, or if Data Fabric delivers multi-tenancy quite well, then inherently your application can assume that, look, if I'm going to carve out a portion of the platform that I'm using, uh, then the multi-tenancy comes naturally and it flows naturally to your application and so should security. So you shouldn't be able to, you shouldn't need to think about multi-tenancy and security every time you build a new app. Those are some of the foundational things that should be, will be in the place in the first go. Yeah, I agreed. Yeah, how about from your perspective, Scott? Do you have any any uh, further thoughts? Uh, yeah, so look, um... It's a tricky one, and I, I think that it was um, even in your podcast you ran the other day, uh, Philippe. Uh, there is a fine balance between security and agility, and, mm-hmm. and there's not always a, a correct answer for it, um, depending on the use case, depending on the sensitivity of data, etc. Um, and it's trying to find that balance in between that is quite key. Um, you, know, you you need to meet certain legal requirements often and mm-hmm. that, that can dictate what happens. I think that um, trying to implement a, a foundation where it's almost inherent can kind mm-hmm. of take that away a bit so that, that you, you try and minimise the impact that it's having and, and try and take that out of the ability to to be agile and, and just have it inherent in, in the platform that you you work from yeah love it now that's that's really good um we have also a question from from jason about um how does how does hp esmero help accelerate the adoption of ai in in an organization um so i think yeah this is a really good question and definitely goes to to some of the other topics that that um um but yeah over over to you guys yeah, I can uh, start that one. So um, the Esmeral platform, and we haven't touched on the, the other pillars uh, quite so much yet, but it's um, I think it's a probably good segue into that where HP has brought together a number of these pillars and brought them together in a unified open platform. Now, what that gives the advantage of is not just having that foundational data fabric underneath, but implementing an open containerized platform and having a MLOps framework on the top that is all pre-integrated with data persistence uh, sitting underneath in the storage layer Mm. and having that in a framework that allows the end users to be able to build, train, deploy, monitor, Mm. um, re-engineer their data science models in a, a seamless way. Um, we find that uh, when those pillars are, are separate, and there's a lot of good uh, solutions in the market for each of the pillars, um, where things start to get tricky is trying to integrate and, and manage that integration between those pillars. And having that all pre-integrated and defined can help um, help take that part of the puzzle out, out of the um, workload that those 
our users are trying to work against. Yeah, that is excellent. Um, thank you very much. How about how about from from your side, Rudhav? Um, how how yeah? How do you see that that um, you know HP Esmeral is is helping accelerate the AI adoption? Yeah, uh, I think as, as Scott's highlighted most of those capabilities, I think I just want to reiterate the flow that uh, for any AI project, the first thing is data, making data accessible, uh, making compute and analytics accessible uh, for a data scientist to then uh, do cleansing and data cleaning and data processing, etc. And then a full framework where uh, the data scientist doesn't have to wait for five days to get a certain mm. GPU resource and you know ten days to get a data because end of the day all of these things add up into their life cycle. If we want the data scientists to deliver uh, like our development teams do mm. uh, in a more agile sprint, then we need to be able to give them the flexibility. And this is where I think industry, uh, I'm very happy. I think this is one of the exciting area of the industry around MLOps with a lot of startups, mature organizations, mm. AWS, Microsoft, HPE, they're all investing in uh, you know, having that standardized approach so that data scientists can get, you know, everything at the right go, uh, access to the data, access to compute, and then capabilities to execute the business problem very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah, that is that is excellent. And I think this is a, that's, that's a really good, um, really good segue where we might go into, into the poll um, answers actually. So I see that we have um, high, um, or in the in the ninety percent, over ninety percent of people have answered the poll. So I'll I'll share the results so everyone can see, and we can talk through uh, where the audience is at in these different uh, segments and help continue the the conversation there. So the first question in the poll was: Has the move to the cloud helped reduce the number of data silos in your organization? And it's a, a 60-40 split with 60% of people are finding that it has reduced the number of silos, which is beneficial. And obviously 40% people haven't seen those benefits come through. From your perspectives, Scott or Rithab, did you have any thoughts to share on this? Just looking at the, at the results there, I think that... Um... I think we've actually got a fairly progressive audience in the sense that I was expecting it to probably to be the other way that, mm. yeah, of that one. And that's that's the trend we've seen in the market. So um, so uh, I think that it is something that's common. Um, by, by moving workloads, coming back to my initial um, comments that I was making, by moving workloads to the cloud, um, We've often found that that's increased data silos because because of that data gravity and and so forth. Mm. Um, so it starts to duplicate some, but there are abilities where I think that part of that move to the cloud is a reduction in the applications or a mm. consolidation, and and that may be um, that that's one of the areas that can help the reduction of silos as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I do. I do agree that it's definitely a, a progressive audience. From what I've seen is in the move to the cloud, the as you were saying, the data gets replicated, either gets replicated and, and put into multiple areas, the same the same bits of data. So it's there's duplication there, yeah. or there's just a lift and shift. So the silos that existed before they exist, but now they're in the cloud. Um, and yeah. and uh, obviously the 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 better approach is is to to try to avoid that. What do you think, Rehab? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I can actually uh, 
understand why uh, this will be like a, even a divisive question. Mm. Uh, because imagine, I imagine the first time when I was working for a large telco here in Australia and we were trying to deliver a, a project for them where we had to ingest around 30, 35 different systems. Um, so getting hold of those systems itself and mm. the approval cycles and uh, beyond the approval cycles and having the connectors to all of those uh, was a fairly large chunk of time that we invested in sort of bringing that data fabric sort of unified layer. But what cloud or some of the move to cloud does bring in is that even though, as you said, there are silos, that there are multiple duplicate copies of the data, uh, at least from an application team point of view, we don't feel that pain because uh, if the data is even in five different silos and if I'm being pointed at, at uh, you know, one area to say, here's how quickly you can get access to the data. So the agility is still there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so the agility, people have seen that that agility is significantly improved. Uh, now, obviously, the silos will impact the data governance team and will impact the bill uh, in the end for the overall TCO of the solutions in the end. Yeah. But agility is what makes people obviously take a lot more that, okay, you know, I can live with the silos because yeah. I at least get the agility out here. Exactly. Yeah. No, I completely, completely agree. And as we were talking there, we had a comment come in from Jason saying that he, um, he says, I found it that it can be consolidated or duplicated um, as like the, the data silos as, as with the move to the cloud. Um, so question question number two there was, do you have issues accessing all of your organizational data? 100% of people said yes, <laughs> that there's definitely issues there. From your perspective, guys, do you have any thoughts to share? Yeah, look, that's um, very common. We hear that from pretty much all our customers. So I'm not surprised on that response. I, I think that that's why... Uh, with the Esmeral platform, we're very heavily focused on that foundational layer. Um, it, it, by putting in newer technologies, containerization, microservices, MLOps, all these types of capabilities into an organization, if you don't have access to the right data, then you're not going to get the value full stop. So um, you need to start at that foundational layer and get that right. Make sure that you can access that data um, and then the rest sort of flows from there. Definitely. Like I've been, I've been in organizations where I, large organizations where I don't even know where to find this data, or I assume that the data is, is available in times where I've had to go outside of the organization to get the data from external companies that, that were getting that data transferred to them yeah. and literally buy it back, buy the organization's <laughs> data back from an external party for us to be able to start projects while I sort of navigate the internal maze to try and get access to that internal. And that was like a period of months that that could have easily been, you know, weeks at a maximum. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely feel the audience's pain. Um, Rid, how about from your side? Any uh, thoughts <laughs> no, on laughing. I was laughing because I exactly had the same problem where we actually ended up getting uh, the high quality data from outside the organization. <laughs> uh, that has happened to me as well. So clearly I wasn't an anomaly. Uh, no, look, I think, uh, and, and this is where, uh, Again, slightly uh, a different point of view here. Uh, you know, I agree with both what you guys said. Uh, is that in some cases, you know, uh, one part of me says, you know, there's no way a large bank is going to get all of their data into a single place. You mm. know, uh, 
Uh, so governance is going to be the key or uh, when I think the question or this question is more about not necessarily uh, getting all the data from every single place into a single, or that's obviously going to be a, uh, not be possible with most large companies, yeah. but at least this is talking more about in the context of AI that I was working with one of our customers here down in Melbourne where, uh, you know, we, we, it was taking them around six days to get data from the edge from a plant. Uh, it was taking them over three days to get data from the SAP system, unless otherwise they built up an entire middleware layer to get some, you know, uh, invested in a large project to, to fix that problem. Uh, now, if it was doing it, if they were doing it for a business application, investing in those technologies makes sense. But okay. in case of an AI, that data could be useful or might not be useful, right? Um, so like all the data scientists wanted to do was to bring data from the SAP systems to understand the plants, uh, equipment, plants, history, take data from the edge and solve a business problem using AI, which is again, uh, looking at the statistical data and understand the failure rate uh, for a manufacturing equipment. Um, so again, uh, mm. the qu this question in my uh, in my world is more about that, hey, can we break those silos and have those kind of critical business data sets in a place with a fully governed strategy uh, to again, enable those use cases quicker? Yeah, and I think too, uh, Philippe, um, accessing the data is one, one issue, but when you translate that through the pipeline to what business impact does that mm -hmm. have, um, it, it's a cost impact. And, and that's yeah. where organisations start to struggle to get an ROI on their AI investments. And sometimes when, when they start struggling to get that ROI, they look back at the tools and they go, well, what's wrong with this tool? What's wrong with that? And sometimes it's that foundational access to the right data to get that value from it. Mm -hmm. um, that's why I'm actually really excited to uh, listen to your presentation, Philippe, when you present at the Esmeral APAC launch uh, in August. Man, I am super excited about that. So it's going to be an amazing event over two days with the first day being focused on, on the leader side and addressing challenges. And then the second day on the technical side, how do we implement the right approaches and the right technologies in order to provide business value? Having the two sides is one of my passions and being part of the Esmeral launch, it's an honor. Yep. So and anyone's able to register for that, it's a free event. August 18 and 19. Outstanding. Yeah. Not too far away now. Exactly. Cannot wait. That is excellent. Um, so on um, going back to the to the to the poll, on question three, we, we were asking about the use of containers and whether people are using are looking into it if they're not using it. So it was um question was, are you using containers in, in your organization? If not, is your organization looking into it? And we got a 40-40 split between, yes, we're using containers. So lots of organizations on the containers journey already, which is great. And then another 40% of attendees said, no, not using containers yet, but looking into it. And we had 20% of people said not looking into containers yet. So not, not in the horizon. Um, did you guys have any, any thoughts to share on those? Yeah, so look, I think that that's probably accurate. I see that... Organisations are starting to um, to sort of dabble in the container space. Um, some more progressed than others, and already running it successfully in production. I think that um, where the challenge sometimes comes in is how do you pick the right container? Where do you run it? How do you get that yeah. 
um, flexibility, elasticity, et cetera. And it's getting those aspects right that I think is the probably the key challenge that organisations are facing with that uh, particular technology. Yeah. Hundred percent, because there's there's uh, yeah organizations that haven't looked into it at all, and then other organizations like Rithav was saying, where they would have you know twenty thirty uh, container environments running running at once. Uh, Rithav, from your perspective, any any thoughts on the um, to share on this question on these answers? Yeah, um, so I think again, uh, as Scott said, it's a it's a I guess uh, a right uh, depiction of what we are seeing as well, and I guess for some customers. Uh, it doesn't even make sense to look at containers as, as a cape because at the end of the day, uh, we need to start identifying uh, the capability that these technologies are delivering, right? End of the day, either are they helping you deliver uh, a new capability to the business or they are they helping you reduce certain cost, right? Uh, so containers have obviously played a part in all the different areas. Like one of our customers, um, you know, they used containers and Kubernetes to uh, that customer we were talking about earlier where they had 30% utilization across, you know, uh, 15, 20 different uh, data environments. So in their case, they brought all the data into a single unified layer, but then that's just the data, right? They still have to run uh, analytics. They still have to provide uh, applications to their businesses to consume the data. So there they needed a layer where they could have a multi-tenant system, right? Mm. So there it was not just providing a new capability. It was basically a cost exercise that by bringing this entire environment together in a single unified platform, they were able to reduce the TCO by almost $6 million, Mm. uh, you know, over the period of two years. Uh, Because, you know, rather than running those things individually, you bring all of them in a single place. So containers and Kubernetes was just an enabler for them to reduce the overall TCO and then scale out cheaper. On the other hand, we had some customers where uh, there were some capabilities they couldn't even deliver without containers. Like we were working with one of the, another financial services customers uh, where they were needing to scale out some of the compute style capabilities, some of the analytics workloads, uh, some of their microservices application, uh, you know, which were, they were struggling to scale in the previous virtual machine world. Mm-hmm. So over there, it wasn't uh, a choice. It was basically a necessity for them to be able to using technologies like this to, uh, you know, introduce those new capabilities in the business and make sure the business is, is performing well. So I think those are the two key customers who I see benefit significantly from these capabilities. Either they are helping reduce costs uh, to, you know, uh, of the overall architecture, or they are introducing new capabilities to deliver something, you know, which they're struggling to deliver in the previous uh, test cases. And on yeah. the other hand, there are some customers where things are running perfectly fine in the virtual machine world or mm-hmm. the cloud world or the on-premises world. For those customers, you know, this is the complexity, unnecessary complexity, which they can simply avoid. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. And and in in our case, um, at sort of um, um, I, at my work in my day job, um, we're in healthcare, and um, one of the use cases that pushed us into into containers was around encryption in in privacy preserving uh, um, uh, data manipulation. So so that was um, yeah, definitely an interesting, really interesting use case where we we had to um, go go the extra mile, and and we're seeing huge benefits from it. So. Yeah, really great. 
the uh, the last question on the poll was around um, productionizing machine learning models. So the question was, is it easy to deploy machine learning models into production in your organization? Very, very one-sided. 100% of people said no, definitely not, not easy at all. I totally understand that's where a lot of people's pain is at the moment. Through the podcast and this series, we get a lot of questions about MLOps. So I think this is going to be a great, great topic to discuss for the next few minutes. Uh, gentlemen, from your perspective, uh, productionizing machine learning models, any, any thoughts to share? Yeah, look, I'll start. The, um, the results don't surprise me. Uh, we hear this all the time. Yeah. And that's um, one of the biggest challenges that organizations have. And I think that part, part of the reason is is that they don't have a framework in place to, mm-hmm. to support the, the process. Um, but it's not just that, that uh, framework. Again, it comes down to the people process technology. Um, but if we take a step back, it's running that, uh, those AI models and being able to get through the different layers of the, the entire solution seamlessly is key and that's why um, with Esmeral we put so much focus on bringing those pillars together so the the topic today was around those three pillars Mm. having them somewhat separated causes a lot of that pain when a a data scientist wants to develop a model the first thing he needs is access to the data now without that in place with the data fabric and that strong foundation sitting underneath, then you start getting all sorts of challenges. How do you then get data at scale to train that model in a seamless way? And different parts of the puzzle require different resources, the amount of storage for the data, the amount of compute required. So you need to be able to separate those to be able to drive it successfully. Very, very, very good. Very important. Very nice. Uh, Rehab, from your perspective? Yeah, I think... Uh, this is one perfect example of where, uh, and I'm, 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 I'm connecting those two things together, but this is a perfect example of my previous example I gave is um, that here containers is a necessity, right? Because what is MLOps? MLOps is all about uh, providing uh, a framework uh, so that we can apply DevOps style methodology to machine learning. Because end of the day, the business goal is to deliver machine learning to production quicker and faster and better. Uh, that's the end goal here. Um, so rather than a data scientist requesting a GPU server uh, you know, on-premises or in the cloud, building their workspaces, trying to figure out if they can use TensorFlow here, but here they want to use MLflow. But in this case, you know, Kubeflow might make more sense or uh, you know, some of the seldom to deploy the machine learning mm-hmm. models. Uh, so there are a number of these capabilities. And then they say, okay, yeah, I need all of that. So let me bring all of those things together myself which is again, not the best use of their time because we hired these data scientists uh, to help us you know, solve a business problem, not uh, create a, a mix of IT technology stacks. Mm-hmm. So this is where I'm quite excited. And it's not just HPE, I'll be you know, upfront here. There's a very strong push in the market as you've seen, would have seen with your previous audiences as well around solving this problem. It's a very hard problem to solve, but this is one problem where containers make perfect sense. Right, because what data scientists need, and uh, I'll take an example of healthcare customer uh, mm-hmm. that we work with. Uh, so there, uh, you know, initially their data science workspaces, or if a data science would get on board, it used to take them around two weeks to onboard the data scientist. 
right? Because they will have to carve out a specific VM or a large machine for him or her, and then give them access to certain data sets here, uh, certain data sets there, and mm -hmm. then uh, give them certain libraries to access here. Some So it was a very large process, right? So what MLOps style capabilities bring them is, uh, okay, uh, you know, I have a containerized workspace where I have packaged all the dependencies mm. we believe a data science disk would need in my company. And the click of a button, they get a data science workspace. Okay, so I'm a healthcare company and they're working on a specific genomic research project. My genomic research project data is in a certain uh, tenancy in my data fabric or my storage layer. I'm going to make sure that every time I spin up uh, a person who is joining a group in my active directory of genomic research data scientist, it's by default connected to the, uh, you know, my data sets that the team owns already. Uh, and because the team already owns a set of GPUs and infrastructure already, the workspace of data scientists is already connected to that resources. So if I want to start looking at the data, training the model, et cetera, then that's already available for me. So mm. on day one, that MLOps methodology brings that first thing to the first thing to the data scientists, right? Now, in their data science lifecycle, you know, they might be working on a problem where uh, their teammate had already extracted some features, right? So now in the older world, you will have to go ask for those models, bring them into their workspaces. But here comes things like model registry, model management. Mm -hmm. um, so where they can collaborate quite well together, right? So my, I have my data science model ready. Now I did the training in my shared resources. I released the GPU back so the other people are using it. Now I want to deploy it. Uh, so earlier, and this is from my big data days, once the data science model was created, it used to take us weeks, if not months, to bring it to the Spark ML or the Spark side, build a data engineering pipeline to deploy it and create a REST endpoint and expose these things out. Uh, again, those kind of things are now automated in the MLOps world, where a containerized model with a single click would be deployed. And the, you know, this is where beauty of Kubernetes comes in that you can, you know, if that model is about uh, simply scoring if a, uh, a machine is going to fail or not, you know, that might only need to run once or twice a day. But if that model is about predicting a fraud, uh, then your banking app could be calling that, you know, 100,000 times a day which can be easily scaled out with the technologies like Kubernetes. So it's a very long winded answer, but I just wanted to give you that journey of, you know, how the technologies like MLOps make a difference uh, into the, you know, data science workloads. Right. Yeah. No, it, it makes a, a huge difference. And I think um, so many people feel that a lot of their work is even trapped um, without without the help of of MLOps uh, to to be able to find a path and essentially like a, a a rail to be able to to ship their products to to customers, um, yeah. And, and in this space, I really feel like data yeah. science and the analytics space is is kind of growing up in the sense of almost going from a you know from from closer to either research and, and then and then a cottage industry to now having something where we we got factories where we're able to create and and, and deploy send uh, these these products out to to customers which is um, yeah the supply chain component is uh, is yeah. really really um, important 
Yeah, no, I, 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 that's exactly how I was explaining to one of my customers yesterday that uh, think of this like a factory approach, right? Mm-hmm. That's a perfect a summation of what MLOps is about. One thing we I really like, and one of the reasons why I actually joined HPE was HPE actually took a very unique approach. Um, so in the MLOps world, uh, there are some very opinionated uh, tooling mm-hmm. out there. Mm-hmm. And then there is a strong open source tooling out there. Mm-hmm. Um, from my experience of in, with the past working with data scientists as a data guy, is every time you come up with a certain a workbench or a certain way of doing things, you will always get a pushback from the data science community. That basically hinders them more rather than a, uh, rather than enable them. So this is where I quite like HPE approach, uh, where you know our product management they basically adopted technologies like Kubeflow and MLflow. Uh, which have become industry standard in the open source world, in the cloud, on-premises, uh, you know, where we've adopted those capabilities and integrated into our environment, uh, which gives at least for me as a field guy to you know, build out and doing the solutioning much more easier uh, with that extensive community behind it. Man, I was wondering about your, yeah, your views between um, the opinionated side and the open source side. So that's, that's really good. Um, Scott, from your perspective, any any other thoughts on on um, MLOps? Um, no, look, I I think it's an exciting and growing space. Um, mm. Yeah, you know, coming back to another example, um, BMW, and this is a unique example um, for their autonomous driving. Their mm-hmm. part of the challenge there is not just creating. Um, creating the models, it's access to the data. So for self-driving cars, the data is being generated in the car itself. Mm. It's not always connected. It's getting that data back to a centralised area where it can be used for the training. Um, but to continually training and it, train and improve the models, you need to push the updated models out to, to those vehicles. So having a, a, a model running inside the car doing real-time decisioning is quite exciting. Um, yeah, that's basically the tech tech summary behind a, an autonomous vehicle. Um, but the, the whole process and the machine that makes that up is quite complex. And being able to simplify that as much as possible is absolutely key. And uh, I know that we're sort of running out of time, but um, during the Esmeral launch, we have uh, Des Verana from DXC, who's going to be talking about that specific use case in a lot more detail. So if people are interested, um, come along to that session. Well, that is great. Yeah, I was about to, to ask you about um, uh, on, on a bit more about the, um, the launch coming up. So 18th and 19th of August, um, it's, it's, a, um, it's, not, it's, not the, it's a it's not the full, full day. It's a part of the day. Uh, the sessions, I found them uh, really focused, really high. Um, high return and um and yeah really really good content do you guys want to share um, a bit more about what people can expect in the launch yeah so look at there's a mix of speakers uh from internally within the hpe team some of our um our, our cto etc who uh, will give a lot more overview of the the platform itself but we do also have customer use cases and examples to to uh, cover some of the use cases that sit behind that and how it's being utilised and the benefits that it's bringing organisations. Uh, as you mentioned, there's a bit more of a, a tech sort of focus um, to as part of it as well, so people can pick and choose which parts are, are valuable to them. 
Yeah, really good. Yeah, so from the schedule, I see uh, data-driven organizations that that has a session, um, advancing the future of driving with AI, as you mentioned um, from this Verana. Um, obviously, I'll, I'll be doing a, a talk about getting return on your AI and, and getting the business value. There's um, data-driven engagement, uh, digital transformation, uh, open architecture platforms. Uh, the yeah the the sessions look fantastic. Uh, there's a technical demo by Nvidia as well day two, so I'm sure that'll be a popular one. Um, yeah, I'm hoping that that uh, people come along and uh, and join uh, what's going to be a really really great couple of days. Yep, and I think the key thing is that again coming back to the very start of this conversation, people see HPE as a, a hardware organization, and it's um, showing that uh, HPE Esmeral is uh, completely not that. That's right. And we had a comment from, from Jason saying that, you know, um, HPE Esmeral, it, it does the end-to-end, like it, what uh, it empowers uh, data scientists to be able to provide value to the business and, and helps with along all, all the steps that they might need uh, support with and makes that easy for them to get their value to customers and to the business. So that's, I think from my perspective, that's that's it in a nutshell. I really like that comment. How about you guys? How do you feel? No, I think you summed it up perfectly. All right, gents. Well, this has been amazing. I can't believe the hour has flown. I've really enjoyed the conversation. The audience had excellent questions and comments. Scott, Redhab, I want to thank you so much for coming along and sharing your your insights, your perspectives, what you're seeing in the market and, and how to solve some of those challenges that we saw um, you know, from the poll that people are finding a lot of trouble in trying to grapple their way through these. So having your perspective has been invaluable. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you so much for the audience who joined. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Talk to you again soon. Bye. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as datafuturology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.